It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 3rd of January. Happy New Year and good morning with much debate and a discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The rotation of Michal Martin and Leo Radker as Taoiseach before the Christmas break resulted in a minimal cabinet reshuffle. The reshuffle of junior ministers, as you probably know, saw Thomas Byrne move from European affairs to sport, a move that will leave many of his Fianna Fáil colleagues envious of the Meath TD who will be given the opportunity over the coming months not just to line out with the country's victorious sporting heroes but to effect change from grassroots level policies that impact on children's participation in sport and create opportunities for them by shaping the direction that Irish sport will take at both an amateur and professional level. We'll begin this year's programmes with the Minister for Sport and Physical uh, a big pardon, Physical Education, Thomas Byrne uh, good morning, Minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us and congratulations on your new role. Thanks very much. I might just correct you briefly, Michael. Happy New Year. Um, I'm not sure I'll be lining out with our sports stars, but I hope that uh, through government policy uh, we'll be giving people the best opportunity of participation and if they're at the top level, that we give them the best opportunity of reaching their highest potential. But I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that I'll be lining out with them. OK, I'm sure that's true, but I'm sure you'll be glad to stand beside them. What do you uh, expect uh, to be the biggest challenge for you uh, in this new role? Well, look, I mean, I was appointed to the role on the 20th of December. Um, people are probably getting back to work like your own programme today. Uh, so I'll be meeting officials today, tomorrow, this week. I'll be visiting the sports campus, meeting Sports Ireland. Uh, we have offices of the Department of Killarney. I'll be visiting them as well. Um, obviously, try to get read into the brief, see what the current issues are that are, you know, that, that will arise in the desk and will require decisions. Um, but ultimately, I suppose what what we're charged with doing as, as a government in relation to sport is a to increase participation uh, among at all levels. It's not just about the elite, although they are really really important. But at all levels to increase participation, we have a, a goal of a sixty percent participation rate in sports um, later on in this decade. Um, also to um, increase uh, gender equality in sports. And there's a lot of work going on at the moment, and I think we have to bring some of that to completion this year. Uh, and also as well to include um, more minorities and particularly people with disabilities in sports. So Sports Ireland do a lot of the work through the national governing bodies, but the Minister for Sport has to uh, ensure that these go- important government and societal policies uh, are followed. 
and there's all the other issues with sport as well um, that you will hear about, particularly uh, around the country. That's in terms of sports facilities and improving them. Uh, and that's something that I suppose every politician knows about because every single politician in the country works on. Uh, and in my role, it'll be uh, my job to ensure that that money is spent uh, in a way that increases participation in sports uh, all across the country. OK, uh, there was a very interesting report uh, from the Youth Stakeholder Forum for Sports uh, before Christmas at the beginning of uh, December. 100 young people participated uh, in uh, this study. Uh, and you talked about participation in sports. Uh, those young people have said that school uniforms are a barrier to participation in sport and physical education, especially when it comes to girls. Yeah, I, I, I think, look, we, we, we certainly are listening uh, to those young people. Obviously, I wasn't at that forum because I wasn't Minister for Sport at the time, but my predecessor was. Uh, and we're looking at what those young people are saying. I mean, clearly there are reasons for school uniforms, which I think most parents uh, agree with. Uh, the cost was always an issue. Um, but there's no doubt that, I mean, I even hear it from um, not just my, 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 my daughter, and you say a lot of girls said this, but even my sons. Uh, in terms of PE, particularly at secondary school where they have to change or whatever, maybe they don't have time for a shower, etc. Uh, this, this is tricky. So this is something that we'll work on as a Department of Sport uh, with the Department of Education. I mean, in this country, traditionally, uniforms have been a matter for the schools themselves. But I mean, I, th- I think if we're going to increase participation in sports, we're going to have to listen to those who participate uh, and try to address the problem. So I'm not going to give a commitment one way or the other on that issue, uh, other than we are listening uh, to those young people. And I will be reading in detail uh, the report uh, from that forum, which I think is very, very important that we yeah. hold. But you have to convince boards of management. Uh, it's proved it impossible for governments to influence schools on school uniform policy. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean that's, that's really on, on the Department of Education side. I mean, what, what we have had in this country over many years, generally speaking, uh, is that schools are independent and the boards of management, which are volunteers uh, almost entirely, um, run the schools uh, independently at local level. That's very important. But they would have, in in many cases, very good reasons uh, for school uniforms. And what we have seen at primary school level uh, over the past number of years, I would say, is very much a move away from the old formal uh, traditional school uniforms that, that we would have worn, uh, mainly to tracksuits. And so we do see that at a lot of primary schools uh, in particular. We haven't seen that at second level. Um, so this is something that we'll have to engage with uh, with Department of Education with schools, with governing bodies of associations of schools, etc., um, to, to listen to young people. I mean, the priority has to be how do we increase participation in sports and how do we do that mm. uh, connecting in the schools as well. Because and, and how do you remove the obstacles? Uh, I mean, if, if girls are uncomfortable in skirts because uh, of what they're doing or expected to do, uh, well, then the problem is that the skirt, it's not the girl or if they're uh, wearing white shorts uh, and are having their period, uh, it's the white shorts that's the problem. Well, I think, look, I'm a, I'm a father of a teenage daughter. I know all about the issues uh, that they face. and I think uniforms are an issue. Um, it's it's something that schools, can, you know, are addressing. I would say, um, but in terms of my role as minister for sport and physical education, is to ensure that we remove all the barriers to participation. And in fact, if you look at the government's national sports policy, I mean, the number two item on the on, on the list of actions is that we will work with the Department of Education to ensure that PE is delivered in schools to fully support the development of uh, physical literacy, fitness in our in our children. And as school uniforms are a barrier to that, we're going to have to look at that. But they're not the only barrier. Uh, there's also the issue of 
physical education halls, playing pitches at schools, which is something I've raised uh, before in terms of uh, new schools that are built, uh, connections with local clubs. And to be fair, the Department of Sport uh, does a very good job ensuring that when sports grants are giving out, given out, uh, that they're they are given out to clubs that work closely with community groups in their area and particularly schools. Uh, we've seen Gaelic, uh, the, the games development officers in various sports uh, coming into schools. Uh, we see volunteers from clubs working with them. In fact, my own wife has volunteered with um, games promotion officers around schools. That's a really important connection uh, with clubs. So there's all these issues mm. uh, that we can do and we, we can expand to develop to ensure uh, that we raise participation uh, levels, that we encourage the people who are really, really good at sport. I think that's really important. But also we make sure uh, that we include absolutely everybody. Uh, and that's that's a key objective of the government. Mm, yeah, and to become a good sport because that extends out to every aspect of a person's life, doesn't it? Uh, if you have that sense of fairness and so on. But unfortunately, at a junior level, as children are taking to sports fields, we're seeing very, very... Uh, disturbing behaviour by adults uh, who are abusing referees and so on and that seems uh, to extend then into the players themselves as they get older becoming violent uh, and you see these malaise uh, taking place uh, and everybody seems to be of the opinion that that's all right uh, because uh, it was a bit of a bust up between heated players when in fact uh, it would be seen very differently if some of these fights or brawls took place on uh, the streets of our towns and villages. Well, I'm not sure that anybody's saying that it's right. Uh, it's not something that I would support. Um, in fact, you know, it has to be stopped. And when I think we see um, what I've seen with referees in the last while, certainly, is that referees have found their voice. Uh, there's a lot of support from outside sport, uh, from within sport, uh, for referees and their decisions. And I've seen referees make, you know, very, very quick decisions when they're when they're challenged unfairly or when they're abused in any way. Uh, stop matches, give people cards, put them off, whatever it is. Uh, and I, I, that's something that we absolutely support. But I don't think there's anybody out there uh, that supports brawls or, or getting involved in them. And but nothing seems to happen. The guards are never involved. Should the guards be involved? Well, if there's any violence on a pitch that breaks the law, of course the guardian should be involved. And I'm not going to talk about any particular cases, but as I understand, there have been one or two quite well-known incidents around the country that the guards have gotten involved in. So, so let's leave that to the Gardaí. Mm, but there's been um, but if there is, scores there's of others that they haven't got involved in. Well, look, the prosecution of crimes is a matter of the Gardaí. What we've got to make sure is that referees' decisions are upheld, are respected. Mm. Uh, referees themselves are respected. Okay, but I suppose what I'm asking you about, Minister, is the ethos of sport, uh, a, a sporting mentality, being a good sport uh, and may the best team win. Uh, and that, that should be the attitude that everybody uh, adopts if they're to participate in sport. And if that's not the case, how, as minister, do you hope to change that? Well, I think I think in general that is the case. But not everyone gets everything right. So people make mistakes. People do things they shouldn't do. Um, that, that's what happens. That's life. But I think the vast majority of people uh, and the vast majority of games are held on that, the basis that you describe, are held on a fair basis, are held on a competitive basis, held on a respectful basis, held, I hope, uh, particularly for young people, on a very enjoyable basis that, as you said, gets people set up for life, gets people fit, etc., uh, that's really, really important. So, so that's that's the way things are. Uh, breaches of that are matters in the first instance for the referee, and then in the matter for the national sports bodies, etc. And if there's breaches of the criminal law, of course, the guardie get involved. Um, but I think let's start off on first principles that games are there to be participated in, 
uh, and to be enjoyed as well. Okay. Do you expect uh, the joint bid uh, by Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to to host uh, the European Football Championships to be successful? Uh, And uh, will it be something that will give a a boost to, to the economy if it is? Look, I mean, that would be very, very exciting. Um, I'll be talking to my officials in detail about that this week. Uh, already there has been preliminary government support for that, and I hope that that will continue. Uh, this will this will become clearer later in the year. Uh, but clearly that would be really, really exciting. I mean, there's a, not just a, um, excitement for us, but there's, you know, there's a north-south dimension to this and east-west dimension to it as well. Uh, I think it's very exciting. Uh, for, for, for the islands here as well. Um, but again, it's something that is obviously very sensitive at the moment in terms of the next coming weeks and months. And I think before I start talking about specifics in relation to that, uh, I'd like to sit down uh, with my officials and, and make sure that we uh, do everything absolutely right to ensure uh, that we can achieve support the sporting bodies to, to achieve success in that. Okay. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, support uh, in uh, the Rugby World Cup and indeed in uh, the FIFA Women's World Cup, uh, for that matter, uh, for the players. Well, look, I mean, it's it's a very exciting time for sport. It's a very exciting time for, for, for women's sport. And I say that, you know, coming from a house, my own family, where my wife is really the sports person in our house, not me. Uh, so I think that's very exciting to see the Mead ladies have done really, really well at the local level. Uh, and we see... Uh, our, our women's soccer players as well reaching uh, the highest levels in the world and that's really really exciting I think there's going to be a huge atmosphere uh, around the country during the summer for that uh, we're all looking forward to that and, and wishing the best I mean it's a, it'll be a, you know a, a, an intense time for them uh, over the coming months as they start to get ready for it start to prepare for it start to get uh, absolutely at their, their highest fitness probably for their lifetimes and their mental uh, state as well, their mental fitness as well will have to be the best uh, in, in their lifetime as well. So I think the whole country uh, wishes them well uh, as they get those preparations underway and very much look forward, looks forward to a very exciting uh, time uh, of soccer when we don't have the, you know, it's completely controversy free. Uh, if you compare it, say, to the, the, the World Cup that was just held in Qatar, there's none of that hanging over. It's simply pure joy for this nation. We're in it for a start, uh, but also uh, we're in it for the first time. Uh, and it's going. I think it's going to be a very, very exciting World Cup. Okay. What's your favourite sport, Minister? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, I think um, I, I used to do a fair bit of running, and I think I need to get back to that now to lead from the front as Minister for Sport. Uh, similarly, with the gym, I think COVID has interrupted me in terms of uh, lifting weights, which is something I really enjoy doing. And again, it's something I'm I'm getting back to now uh, as Minister for Sport. I think I I, I need to lead uh, from the front. Uh, I would have over the years gone to I suppose a lot of soccer matches with my friends. Um, but I suppose lately, um, sport in our house is really entirely uh, revolving around my children. Uh, and that's both boys play soccer, uh, they both play Gaelic, uh, and my daughter plays hockey uh, as well. So, so we're heavily involved, I would say, in local clubs particularly. And, and that's where I spend almost every weekend for the last few years, is at various matches, uh, driving from one to the other, trying to get bits of matches as well. So. Yeah. So I think I have a good experience of that level of participation. I imagine you'll be going, uh, to, a lot, to, you'll be going to a lot more matches now. Probably, but <laughs> the, the kids will have to come first, I think. Okay. They, they, you uh, well, can see when, when, I tell them, when I tell the kids I'll be late for a match, I can actually see them sometimes looking at me from the pitch, like wondering have I arrived. So, so I think they'll have, to, they'll have to stay as a priority. But that certainly is a good training ground for anybody. Uh, who wants to get involved in this sector because you see it at all levels. Okay, over the course of uh, the next year, uh, what uh, event uh, will you look forward to most to uh, attending? 
Look, I mean, I think the, 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 the I mean, ministers attend events all the time. I mean, and I did that as, as European Affairs Minister, and they're very, very nice. But I mean, if we're not getting increasing participation, if we're not um, increasing gender uh, gender equality in sport, if we're not increasing participation by people with disabilities, it doesn't matter what events we go to or what sporting events uh, we go to. They're the priorities. Uh, we've got to make sure, for example, that the national governing bodies have uh, the 40% uh, female representation. That's really, really important. And some, some of them haven't just got there yet, but they have to at the end of the year. Uh, that's that's what we'd be judged on. Um, it's, 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 this, this is not, you know, I mean, I, I go to soccer games, I go to Gaelic games, not being Minister for Sport, but as Minister, uh, you're charged with actually delivering the policies and the government has set out, and those policies are really, really important. I think that's what I'll be judging. How, how do you uh, believe uh, this will impact on you politically, uh, professionally? Uh, is it a, a move sideways, or is it a move upwards? Uh, you built up a, a very strong profile in European affairs, uh, and while I'm sure uh, you'll miss that job of work and indeed the profile that they gave you as a politician uh, there's great opportunity uh, to build on that profile now in sport well look I mean when you're given a job as minister I mean the job is to first of all read into it and then do the job to the best of your ability that's what I tried to do uh, as minister for European affairs and I had two and a half years doing that um, where, you know, it was a huge honour to represent the country really at the highest levels uh, across the world. I mean, I chaired the UN Security Council, so that was a particular highlight in that job. Uh, but sport is really, really important. I mean, the, the average family are the, should be uh, participating in sports uh, every weekend, um, and that's, that's daily life for people in Ireland. I think that's, it's really, really important to get involved in. Uh, my colleagues, politicians from across all parties place great value on sport, uh, and already have been in contact with me about various issues. Uh, surrounding sports, so I think it'll certainly keep me in, in much closer contact uh, with people uh, on the ground. But I would say this: I, I, I was shown one newspaper article about two weeks ago, where the word "coveted" was used about two junior ministries. Uh, one was European Affairs, and it was Sport. Uh, so I think that I, I, I should take that as a compliment. Yeah. Uh, but what I'll absolutely guarantee is I'll do the job to the best of my ability. Okay, as I say, I think uh, some of your colleagues will be envious of uh, the position uh, that uh, you've. Uh, being appointed to, to. I'm sure everybody in government, uh, though, will be very disappointed with uh, the way the year is starting today uh, and uh, the HSE asking people not to go to hospitals, if at all possible. Uh, there's going to be a tough few months ahead in the health services, it would seem. There's no question about that. I mean, I want to be clear, though, as well. I mean, if you're seriously ill, you have to go to hospital. Um, I mean, if, if, if particular hospitals will, will have particular problems on particular days. We've had a massive increase. I think every family in the country has probably seen this in terms of coughs and colds um, and coughs that last a long time. And people have been sick over Christmas. We've all seen that. And uh, people have tried to be, in my experience, be pretty sensible about that um, and to try and stay away, etc. And I think that's had a massive impact on our hospital service at this at this time. So look, I mean, we as a government want to work and support the HSE as much as possible. Uh, there has been some work obviously done to try and get some uh, private hospital capacity, uh, but clearly our doctors and nurses are under huge pressure. So look, those 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 warnings have been given, but I don't think anybody has suggested that somebody is seriously ill shouldn't go to hospital or shouldn't ring 999. Okay, well, thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Minister, and best of luck uh, in your new role. And uh, as I say, thanks for your time with us on the programme uh, this morning. That's uh, Thomas Byrne, who's a Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East and uh, the newly appointed Minister for Sport and Physical Education. 
The funeral of Pope Emeritus Benedict is to take place on Thursday of this week and uh, we'll look back on a Pope uh, that will be remembered in different ways this morning by talking to Father Iggy O'Donovan who's an Augustinian priest and a very good morning to you Iggy and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, Sad to to see anybody pass uh, away Uh, but how will you remember Pope Benedict uh, and his time as uh, the leader of the Catholic Church? Yeah well a mixed bag I would say because um, there were if you like two phases to Benedict's life. The first part uh, mainly in Germany where uh, up until the 1970s, where um, he was seen as a leading scholar. And I think friend and foe alike will admit that he was a leading scholar and a very brilliant mind. And ironically, very much associated in the 1960s with the reforming end of the church, the liberal end of the church. And uh, listeners might be interested to know that his job at the German University at Tübingen, where he lectured with Hans Kung, Kung was the man who actually recommended him for the job. Interesting, mm. given given subsequent events. So um, his uh, publications, his books, his writings and so forth, okay, they'd be for people more interested in theology and church history and that type of thing. But they were generally, it's agreed, they would have been very learned, very deep, a very learned, probably the most learned pope for many centuries. Mm. Now, indeed, some of them, he didn't have much competition. But nevertheless, he was a brilliant man. Later, he took on, if you like, a career in the church. Uh, mainly as cardinal in charge of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the CDF uh, body, which uh, I encountered once or twice in my time. Mm. And there, if you like, a new Ratzinger emerged, where he became very much the disciplinarian and very much the watchdog, particularly in behalf of John Paul, John Paul II, who put him in, who put him in that job. It wasn't the job Ratzinger wanted. He never looked for a job in the church at all, in fact. He always more comfortable at his desk. But once he'd gotten that job, he felt it his duty to rein in the excesses as he saw them. And uh, unfortunately, the excesses came from one side of the church, namely the liberal reforming wing and the right wing and the others who, in my opinion, had done much more damage mm. were the ones he encouraged. And I have no problem with right wing people, by the way. I like both to be in the church. Mm. The problem was with Ratzinger is that he wanted only one side and uh, camped down very much on the minority whom he saw as being, if you like, dissidents and so forth. Mm. It's a mixed bag, but a very brilliant mind, a very brilliant man, I will say that much. Uh, An exceptionally conservative Pope, uh, I think it's uh, true to say. Uh, I I think in some ways he didn't have a honeymoon. He inherited from John Paul, who was in ill health towards the end of his life. Nevertheless, John Paul was an international personality. John Paul, if you like, was the Pele, God rest him, he's buried today, I believe. He was the Pele of the church. You know, he was seen as the star pope after a series of quite dull ones, especially Paul VI. Now, uh, John Paul was an actor. He loved the crowds. He loved the people. He, he, he was energized by activity, travel, meeting people, meeting young people, meeting anybody. Uh, loved sport, all that type of thing. Ratzinger wasn't into any of that. He was a shy man, basically, and he liked to stay at his desk. He wasn't very comfortable in crowds and so forth. And uh, he liked to read his theology books, but the, the job was given to him, and he took it more or less in obedience. But certainly he was traditional. He encouraged very much the bringing back of the rolling back of the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. Mm. He encouraged this Latin mass society. God knows some real right-wing loopers there, some of them. 
but he, and he encouraged all that type mm. of thing. And uh, the other thing, of course, we have to acknowledge is that he had to face one tsunami, an, an absolute tsunami. He didn't face it no very well, though, did he? Well. This, this would be the issue of clerical child sexual abuse. The, the, uh, the, 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 the one of clerical abuse, mm. uh, sexual abuse, that's... Uh, was such a sensitive issue mm. and such an enormous issue it became. Now, mm. okay, that was there for decades. That went back to the old days. Yeah. To the, you know, that went back a long time. But it also time. went back to I his believe. time in Germany as a bishop when he ignored it, it, complaints against... The difference was, the big difference was, Michael, attitudes had changed and above all, media had changed and social mm. media had come on the scene. But the, Pope, now, the Pope's the history told us that he, he ignored complaints about four accusations of child sexual abuse. I have heard that. Mm. I don't have the mm. details of the case, but in that, that would have been back, say, in 1960s, 1970s. Mm. And I would have said that probably the majority of his colleagues at that time mishandled that situation badly mm. everywhere. I wouldn't pick him out for particular blame there. Mm. But uh, it, nevertheless, it was the tsunami he faced. And I, I don't think Jesus himself could have handled it because it was such an issue that it, it, it did more damage to the church than the Reformation than any other scandal of any sort. Mm. Come and back to that uh, in a, a moment. Uh, but when you talk about him being right-wing or conservative, uh, he certainly was when it came uh, to the role of women in the church, same-sex relationships uh, and contraception. Uh, and uh, as you say, his right-wing views uh, led to disciplining uh, those with more liberal views, people like yourself, yes. uh, and you were disciplined because uh, of uh, Pope Benedict's leadership, were you not? Well, it, 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 okay, he didn't take that per- decision mm. personally. He didn't know me at all. Though mm-hmm. We did meet on occasion, ironically, we did, but he wouldn't have known me for, from Adam. I was a very, I was very small fry. Nevertheless, he presided over an atmosphere where that type of oppression took place. Like, I have actually a document to the effect that uh, the gross uh, scandal and so forth I had given to the people of Drogheda, um, County Loud, uh, you know, and me too, I suppose, LMFM, the whole area there. Mm. And that uh, this, the scandal and whatnot that had been inflicted, that, uh, that type of thing, yes, I have a doc. So he created, there was an atmosphere there which led to that type of thing. Now, other colleagues, such as, say, Father Tony Flannery, t- Tony was silenced completely. Mm. And uh, then, of course, um, Hans Kung, who was probably the greatest modern Catholic theologian, was stripped of his was stripped of his right to teach Catholic theology. And but he continued in the secular in, in a secular university and uh, continued to produce his works and as a theologian, but not officially recognised. But uh, yes, uh, he did preside over that very uh, uh, repressive period. All right, but that had been that had been in her, he inherited that from John Paul. But except John Paul, if you like, had a more, if you like, appealing personality, a more popular personality, but uh, was extremely traditional uh, behind the scene. But I do, I do accept though that the whole thing was clouded by the sex abuse scandal. Mm. The whole thing was covered, by, and uh, he inherited that. But and I think he was way out of his depth there, as would all of most of us have been. I hand him. I wouldn't. Mm. I'm not. Don't come down on him and that so much. But. The other issues you mentioned, Michael, such as the women priests, which an issue which I would have no difficulty with, they are the majority of our church, the women, and uh, the the description of the um, gay gay LGBT people as being uh, disordered. Now, okay, he was speaking philosophically when he used that term disordered, but nevertheless, if you use that word in modern English to somebody that they are disordered, it it certainly comes across as extremely negative. All right, I, I think one and, of us. Uh, so that that and those people now, luckily, 
where we live in a society now where the people themselves have spoken, and I'm t- thinking of the referendum some years ago here, mm. where the majority of voters who actually were Roman Catholic, how they voted to reform uh, those those repressive laws. And you look back now and people like David Norris mm. and others as champ- you know, champions of civil rights. I know, but they're still shunned by the church, though. A good record there. But they are still shunned by the church. Uh, and it's, well, it's the same church that covered up clerical child sexual uh, abuse uh, and indeed uh, Benedict's role I- in turning a blind eye or covering up um, was strongly criticised by many. His biggest critic was possibly the Taoiseach of the day, Enda Kenny here, uh, who after the publication of uh, the Cloyne report spoke, yes. spoke about I, the I, rape I, I, and I, I, torture. Enda Kenny on that one, uh, probably no Irish politician and no Irish teacher mm. had ever spoken quite like that. But what he said about Pope Benedict was that the rape and torture of children sorry, sorry, he said the rape and torture of children were downplayed or managed to uphold the primacy of the institution, its power, standing and reputation. Uh, was Enda Kenny correct when he said that uh, on behalf of the Irish people? Well, I remember it was, it was, it was, it was in response to the Klein report there was a seeding sense of anger in the country and uh, the Taoiseach was speaking in that context. Now, as far as I was concerned, I was glad he spoke because the Vatican and so forth, it was a dysfunctional, narcissistic place. And the mishandling of these cases, now, nobody would have done it perfectly. The state hadn't done it perfectly down the years. Nobody had. But nevertheless, uh, I, for me, that speech by Enda Kenny was possibly the finest public speech since De Valera's reply to Churchill in 1945. So uh, also it reflects, again, the maturity of our democracy. And as we celebrate our centenary this year, that we are now, the Taoiseach was speaking on behalf of a secular modern democracy that didn't have to kowtow to uh, croziers and bishops and mitres and all that went on before. Mm. Cardinals so that, and popes. In fact, that was, in fact, okay, the issue that Enda Kenny was dealing with was a deadly serious issue, that of protection. But... Overall, quite apart from that, the fact that he said it, re- it reflects the general change in atmosphere for the better that was happening in this country. And the various referenda since have, the people have spoken clearly, and they've also shown how they are now able to make a distinction between your personal faith and public policy. Okay. And that's the way it should be, and I'm very happy with that. All right, well, Pope Emer- Emeritus uh, Benedict will be laid uh, to rest uh, on Thursday. We leave it there yes. for the moment, Dickie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on. Yes, and we may need rest in peace. Mm-hmm. We do, and mm-hmm. we... And Pele today as well. And Pele, of course. Father Iggy O'Donovan, thank you indeed. Uh, I think what we'll do now is listen to a little bit of what Andy Kenny had to say as Taoiseach following the publication of uh, the Cloyne Report. The revelations of the Cloyne Report have brought the government, Irish Catholics and the Vatican to an unprecedented juncture. It's fair to say that after the Ryan and the Murphy reports, Ireland is perhaps unshockable when it comes to the abuse of children. But Cloyne has proved to be of a different order. Because for the first time in this country, a report into child sexual abuse exposes an attempt by the Holy See to frustrate an inquiry in a sovereign democratic republic as little as three years ago, not three decades ago. And in doing so, the Klein report excavates the dysfunction, the disconnection, the elitism that dominate the culture of the Vatican today. The rape and the torture of children were downplayed or managed to uphold instead the primacy of the institution, its power, its standing and its reputation. 
far from listening to evidence of humiliation and betrayal with St. Benedict's ear of the heart. The Vatican's reaction was to parse and analyze it with the gimlet eye of a canon lawyer. This calculated withering position, being the polar opposite of the radicalism, the humility, and the compassion upon which the Roman church was founded. The radicalism, the humility, and the compassion, which are the very essence of its foundation and its purpose. The behavior being a case of Roma lacuta est, causa finita est. Except in this instance of Cancola, nothing could be further from the truth. Klein's revelations are heartbreaking. It describes how many victims continue to live in the small towns and parishes in which they were reared and in which they were abused. Their abuser, often still in the area and still held in high regard by their families and their community. The abusers continued to officiate at family weddings and funerals. In one case, the abuser even officiated at the victim's own wedding. There is little that I or anyone else in this house can say to comfort that victim or others, however much we want to. But we can and do recognize the bravery and the courage of all of the victims who told their stories to the Commission. While it will take a long time for Klein to recover from the horrors uncovered, it could take the victims and their families a lifetime to pick up the pieces of their shattered existence if ever they do. That's the former Taoiseach, Andy Kenny. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the new year begins uh, and again Brexit, the Northern Ireland Protocol are in the news. The Taoiseach, as you've been hearing, is saying uh, that what was proposed is too strict and uh, some concessions should be made to those who are concerned uh, about their British identity in Northern Ireland. Uh, It's interesting uh, to hear those comments today following uh, the comments of uh, the former Sinn Féin President Gerry Adams to the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement and he says we should be looking at the prospect of an all-Ireland jurisdiction, a united Ireland, a reunited Ireland. No Irish government to this day has produced a strategy to build a new and inclusive Ireland and give effect to Irish unity. Now there's a mechanism to achieve this. The absence of Irish government planning is indefensible. It's incredibly short-sighted. What is needed is the full implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, including setting a date and preparing for the referendum on the future. And this requires inclusive discussions about the future to ensure that not only do citizens take informed decisions, but that the new Ireland which emerges when the Union ends is one in which everyone is valued and social and economic rights are upheld. That's when the union ends, if the union ends, of course. Uh, Jerry Adams was speaking to the implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement Oireachtas Committee. The chair of that committee is Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd. Like in my own county, you know, Jean McConville, Tom Oliver, Captain Robert Merritt, they, they, they were all murdered. And um, I just want to make this point personally. Like, I'm a, I'm a Republican, I'm a nationalist. The difference is that I always believed that human life was sacred and that political system was the system to work in. And I, I you know, that, that's my point. And I just feel that the, 
the bodies of the disappeared, the people we've met, you know, who remain today in unmarked graves, you know, and I appreciate and acknowledge that I think 16 of them, in fairness, have been, they've been located, but there are still families awaiting closure. And I think if we're talking about peace and, and getting an outcome that these families need closure, and I just wonder if there's anything additional we can all do to, to make that possible. Well, uh, I, I work with the Commission. Sure, no, I accept that. No, I work with the Commission. I, 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 I meet the Commission regularly. I, I have travelled to the, the, the places where some of these unfortunate folks have been uh, executed, shot to death and, and, and buried. Uh, that should never have happened. Uh, there, there are ongoing efforts. Sure. Bad weather and so on, obviously, has subordinate. So what? So what we can do is uh, appeal once again that anybody that has any information whatsoever, even the tiniest little bit of information, which they might not think is important, sure. it's very important to the commission, and uh, we'll, 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 we'll hopefully see. The uh, return of those who still, whose remains have still not been, uh, gone. and that's 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 certainly uh, that's certainly my resolve. And the, the commission itself has said that it's got the full cooperation. Sure. From, oh, but from the bodies. Are, uh, look, I'm only just making the point, just from my perspective, what I feel will bring closure, is any additional steps all of us can make. Well, well, yeah. well yeah. And, you know, and I think that, that's a fair point. There's, not, there's nothing stopping you, Fergus? No, but I'm talking about, about the point I was going to make is that, um, is that like these are human beings that were being buried, you know, and somebody has to know. It was, it, you could never forget that, in my view. That's just my personal view. And... Um, I, I just saying that as an honest point, uh, and, and that's that's really the difference. The difference is that I think there's never, that's never acceptable ever. Sorry, I know. And I are wearing our pins today for the families of the disappeared. All right, that's a, an interesting uh, conversation. I hope you agree uh, with Jerry Adams, who was invited in to speak uh, to that committee as one of the architects of the Good Friday uh, Agreement. Uh, you heard also from Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd, who chairs the committee, and uh, it was uh, Fine Gael Sam- Senator Emer Curry uh, who we heard uh, talking about the pins at the end of that clip. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, just some comments coming to us. Eric Indondock says, Hi, Mike. The late Pope was innocent. He never committed a crime. He was a holy man. God bless him. Happy New Year, Eric. Thank you indeed. Maul, on the other hand, says, Pope Benedict was a judgmental hypocrite. Uh, very strong thoughts uh, there from Maul. Thank you for that. Uh, following our interview with uh, the Minister for Sport, Thomas Byrne, uh, text a WhatsApp message from someone who says, Great to hear that Thomas has been a Pointed to sport. I note that one of his priorities is to achieve uh, the 40% of women on boards uh, and what about uh, minority sports uh, there's uh, little or no ladies taking part how will they be treated says our caller well thank you indeed for that I've just been handed a, a note from the HSE about Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drada if you're not feeling well uh, and you're thinking about uh, going to the hospital 
uh, as you've been hearing about all hospitals, uh, maybe you can rethink that. Uh, the statement says that uh, the Lourdes is currently experiencing unprecedented attendances at the emergency department. Urgent cases will be prioritised. However, if you are triaged as not being clinically urgent, patients will regrettably experience long wait times. Please be advised that the local minor injuries unit is open until 8 o'clock this evening and every day at the Louth County Hospital and if your complaint can be treated there that is certainly a far better place to go for you because you won't be waiting so long and for the hospital and other patients because you won't be putting pressure on the hospital. Now as you heard in the headlines uh, the funeral of Brian Reynolds is uh, to take place in about an hour from now. Uh, he died in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital on Christmas Eve after what appears to have been a vicious attack on him at his home in Rathmullen Park. We're joined by local councillor, Labour's P.O. Smith, who's in studio. Good morning, P.O., and thank you indeed morning, for joining us. Uh, there's uh, a lot of theories going a- around this, but I think there's a consensus that four men broke into Brian's house and beat him with hammers. Uh, and whatever resulted in his death, that certainly was linked to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to give my pass on my condolences to the family. <clears throat> it's a very sad time for all of them. Uh, but yes, by all accounts, this was an extremely vicious murder, and uh, it's something that we've spoken about before, about the viciousness of, and, and the evolving viciousness of, of attacks uh, on people who are, uh, you know, probably involved in gangs, mm. and this is gang-related murder from everything that I can actually... Yeah, well, that's uh, the phrase uh, I was interested in hearing, uh, because it's not a phrase that the guards are, are using uh, as yet. Uh, they haven't uh, said that it's a murder investigation. Yeah, and I mean, I'm picking up from what other people are mm. saying as well, and uh, it, by all accounts, it does seem to be have some type of gang involvement, you know, mm. and, uh, like, we have a, we do have a problem in Drada with... Uh, gangs and drug gangs organised crime that's a reality and if people think that the feud is over well what we, how we defined the feud a number of years ago uh, is probably over in terms of the fact that there was lots of shootings on the streets and that type of stuff uh, but what I believe is actually happening now at the moment is that people who have kept their head down over the last couple of years because of COVID and the increased pressure from national media and the Garda presence are now exerting themselves and looking to dominate the drugs market in this town. Right, and you believe that this is in some way linked to this because there's been a lot of theories going around about cigarettes being seized, dodgy cigarettes <coughs> being sold in the shop, a debt of €30,000, and that some of the individuals involved in this attack on Brian Reynolds may be involved in local drug gangs. Yeah, certainly that seems to be the information that's coming my way and the information that I'm I'm, I'm picking up, uh, uh, even from the national media. <clears throat> and uh, I think, you know, it needs to be called out too. It needs to be said because we do face serious problems in this town and I suppose in other towns across the country. Uh, just because, like if you, if we talked before about the number of houses that were born to, or attempted born, attempted to be born out over the last, say, uh, three to six months. And that seems now to be a consistent trend that's happening at the moment. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, and I'm worried about what's happening in the town. I'm very worried about what's happening to young people in the town and, and where it's going to lead to because... You know, if people think that the drugs trade or the illegal cigarettes trade, and let's talk about legal cigarettes too, because, you know, this is a big a big trade at the moment. I mean, I remember times in the past where container loads of cigarettes were coming in through Drogheda Port and uh, the customs were taking uh, certain containers away. So this is a trade that's active in the town. And when people are buying illegal cigarettes and buying illegal drugs, they're fueling what's going on. And to some extent... There definitely is a connection between somebody paying for a box of cigarettes and what's happened there uh, to Brian Reynolds. That's mm. the reality of it. In my view, that's the reality of it. Mm. And we, we need to make that connection because if we're not making that connection, we're losing out on something. Yeah. Uh, do you think people will think about that if they open a packet of cigarettes uh, that they bought for four euro instead of 14 euro? Uh, I understand that's what you're hoping will happen, but people say, I can't afford the cigarettes and you know um, I had nothing to do with that yeah and, and and that's the way some people think uh, it's, not, it's not the way I think and my my fear is this that by using the illegal cigarette market and by using the illegal drug market that we're actually eroding the society that we have and the values that we have as a society and this thing takes place over a number of years <clears throat> the extreme cases of it we see in, in Mexico at the moment. But look close to the home in Holland, where we, you know, the uh, there was a report issued there by the World Bank a year ago st- stating that Holland was actually on the verge of becoming a, fa- a failed state because of the influence of crime and organised crime. And I'm not saying we are ne- near there yet, but we can do a lot now t- at this point in time to mm. stop ourselves getting into a war situation. But unfortunately, from what I can see, we're just as bad now with illegal cigarettes and, and, and illegal drugs as we were five or six or seven years ago. Right. In fact, we're worse. Right. Okay. That's a big statement and tells a, a story <coughs> in itself, doesn't it? Uh, because so much attention has come on Drogheda. Yeah. We've, I, you know, we've said before that we, we've got the guards, we've got the resources, mm. but there's only so much the guards can do at the end of the day. And <clears throat> like... 
you know, we as a society have to actually start uh, paying attention to our behaviour and what we do. Mm. I mean, I'm sure there's people listening out here today who know people who buy illegal cigarettes. I'm sure there's people out here today listening to this this conversation with us who know people who are using illegal drugs. <coughs> and, you know, we have to talk to people in terms of saying there is a personal responsibility here on each and every one of us uh, to do the right thing. And we can't abdicate that responsibility. We can't say, well, it cost me 20 euros in, in, a, in a, or 15 euros in the shop and I can get them for four euros down here. So that's, I'm all right, Jack. Yeah. Mm. It doesn't work that way. Mm. Mm. Well, it's going to be hard to convince people of that uh, because, you know, they're highly addicted to these things and can't afford to do otherwise. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, cigarettes is probably mm. one of the most extreme addictions people can get. I mean, when you say I'm going to mm. give them up to actually giving them up, the average mm. time is 25 years. So it's really uh, an addictive thing to get involved in. But mm. <clears throat> the point I'm making is that that certainly from a, a society point of view, from a government point of view, we have to look at, how we're going to tackle this because we're playing catch up at the minute mm. so we, we had no resources during the uh, recession <clears throat> the community policing units were stripped uh, we had no uh, interventions in the community as such uh, even now at the moment if you look at the burnout rate in social workers in, in Drogheda it's extremely high and you've got younger people coming in from college and taking over complex cases yeah. uh, so we have got a significant problem and you know, we got to open our eyes to it and say, you know, when we look at Brian Reynolds' debt or, or, or somebody somebody else getting burned out of houses, mm. this is what's going on. And we tend to push these things out of mm. our head very quickly and move on with our life because we yeah. don't like to think about mm. them. Yeah. But we it's, should. It's hard to understand how it's not being described as a merger investigation at this stage, given what is being said about what happened, that four people battered this man to death with hammers. Uh, and it's an atrocious murder. It's not... <laughs> Uh, on a normal scale at all uh, and coincidental perhaps uh, that it's the second really atrocious murder in Rathmullen Park uh, but are, are there pockets of the town like every town like Moneymore, Rathmullen Park uh, where um, there is a greater problem if you like? No, to be honest with you I, I think like uh, you know certain areas of the town get a bad reputation because of uh, the way things are reported in newspapers but there is a lot of people who are middle class people going around uh, smoking weed on a regular basis, taking cocaine on a regular basis, and they have got a disposable income to keep this market on the go. And we never hear about this. You know, we never, it's never really talked about. But I'm telling you now, that's a reality in this town. Mm. And uh, so pointing the finger, I'm not saying you're pointing the finger, but mm. the national media can point the finger at certain areas in Drogheda and say, oh, these are trouble spots. Mm. The best of people live in Moneymore, the best of people live in Rutmullen. And uh, a small number of, uh, of people who are involved uh, create a bad reputation for the area. But mm. the people who are actually fueling the drugs market in the town seem to get a free pass, in my view. Mm. And uh, a lot of those people are people who are middle class and professional. Yeah. And, and they're, the they're fueling it because they're creating the market for the dealers, whether yeah. they're selling yeah. cocaine or cigarettes, uh, they're the dealers and they're heavy-handed gangs um, and I'm sure uh, you remember that famous quote from the Dons when they brought heroin into Dublin in the 1970s and said uh, if you think Larry Dunn was saying if you, if you think uh, we're bad well you see what's coming behind us uh, is that the kind of territory that we're getting into in Drogheda now that uh, we're not talking about the same gangs or the same structures uh, but we're talking about uh, a new posse as such yeah I 
my own view is that there is a, a cohort of people who have formed a gang and are looking to dominate the drugs market in Drogheda. <clears throat> and uh, I think that they're well on the way to doing that. And uh, may, there is another rump of people who are probably against them and to some extent. But, uh, you know, that's where we're at. Mm. And, uh, and that's why the petrol bomb attacks have started again, is it? I believe so. Yeah. I definitely believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're telling people to get off our turf. Yeah, yeah. Basically, that's what it's all about. You mm. know, that's what it's all about. Mm. And uh, it's going to continue. And like we spoke before about the viciousness of things. I mean, like this is not going back 10 years ago where people would have a bit of a row with each other. This is evolving. You've seen what happened with uh, Keeman Reedy Woods. You've seen mm. what's after happening with Brian Reynolds. And uh, there is a trajectory to this type of behaviour where it gets more and more vicious. Mm. Because people believe that they have to outdo what's after happening in the past mm. in order to make a point. Yeah, and uh, they can act with impunity because everybody is scared of their lives at the make. I mean, yeah. imagine somebody knows what happened to Brian Reynolds, uh, but I'm not sure there'd be very many people who'd be brave enough to come forward and testify against those responsible for his death. Well, if there was, as reported in some of the papers, four people involved in, in, in the murder, well, then you can actually be fairly guaranteed there's probably about 20 people know about it, uh, have information about it. And, I, you know, I would definitely call on people to uh, get in contact with the Garda uh, information, uh, confidential information line and, and give whatever information they have because there's probably somebody that was involved in that murder who has regrets about doing it now. There are other people who have no problem with being involved in the murder. Uh, but there's probably some people who are, who are regretting it and, and their conscience is at them. And I would say to them, listen, you know, get involved, get to speak to the guards in a confidential manner uh, because this can affect the rest of your life in a very negative way. Okay, Pio Smith, thanks for coming in to us uh, this morning. That's uh, Labour Party councillor on Louth County Council, Pio Smith. Michael Reed on LMFM. The highest number of deaths on Irish roads recorded in six years occurred last year. 155 people lost their lives on the roads and uh, the new Minister of State uh, in Transport, Jack Chambers, is saying that he wants to reduce speeding and that will be his main priority to try and see a turnaround uh, in uh, the trajectory uh, that has seen the highest number of deaths, as I see, say, since 2016. Let's speak to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport, Darren O'Rourke, who's a TD for Mead East. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Uh, the problem was a, a lot worse many years ago and we've seen the numbers come down over many years, uh, but we seem to be going back in the wrong direction. Yeah, that seems to be the, the case, Michael. Um, and the, the junior, junior minister has pointed towards one factor uh, and it is uh, acknowledged as a major contributing factor uh, in the area of speed. Um, one of the others, I think, that um, is an area of focus from the RSA and others is the area of distraction, whether that be you know, chemically induced uh, drugs or alcohol or mobile phones. Um, they are seen as as major contributing factors towards um, road fatalities and also serious collisions causing serious injury. Um, it is uh, very concerning to see the, see the rise. I think there's a number of factors that, that need to be considered. I think um, the, the roads are being used in a different way. Obviously, uh, the return after COVID, um, you know, COVID mm-hmm. has, has had an impact here. But also there's an increasing number of pedestrians using the road and in the time ahead and in the years ahead, we hope that there will be 
even more pedestrians and cyclists and vulnerable users on our roads and very concerningly we, we, we see an increase in, in the number of, of fatalities of, of those road users as well. It was I think pretty Michael, incredible wasn't it? 41 pedestrians were killed last year. Absolutely and, mm. and you know we have to think of every one of those um, is, is a life lost and a mourning grieving family and friends and and and, and is avoidable. These are avoidable deaths uh, uh, in in the in the absolute main. Um, a lot of it related to, to driver behaviour. Um, and I, I have to say, everywhere I go, whether I'm talking to stakeholders or I'm talk, whether I'm talking to grieving families at the the transport committee, the one issue that comes up time and again, and it is the deterrent of the fear of being caught. The fear of being caught speeding or on your phone or drunk driving or drug driving. Um, and that deterrent isn't there in a sufficient capacity. I've raised this in me with the, the Joint Policing Committee. Um, uh, thankfully, I think our numbers, we don't have them absolutely confirmed, but they have slightly improved. We had a, a particularly bad year in 2021 in me. I think it has improved, which is welcome. But again, we need to, to reduce the figures there. And what we need to see is an increased uh, guard presence, uh, checkpoints on the road. And we know that instead of, of uh, meeting the target of 1,200 in the roads traffic unit, uh, we only have about under 700 people in the traffic unit. And uh, that's across the state. And there was a commitment there from the Garda Commissioner to get it up to 1,200. Um, but instead of, of recruiting into the the, the, the Garda, um, we're actually reducing numbers year on year. And that's mm. deeply, deeply concerning and needs to be addressed by by, by the, the, the minister and acting minister. All right. And is it a question of policing, enforcing the law, or is uh, part of the solution education and teaching people, explaining to them so that they understand why the laws are in place so that people's lives are protected and aren't aren't lost. And if you look at the statistics uh, that have been provided for this year, it seems uh, that the majority of those who died on the roads were men and under the age of 35. Absolutely. There's a a pattern within it. And and again, to to make that point that these are individuals, no two cases are the same. But to talk in the generality of road safety, Anywhere where, and we have made significant significant progress. You said it over over years. It's an, a number of factors. So it's driver education. It's engineering solutions. It takes far too long to get uh, uh, traffic calming measures in, in urban centres and in uh, and in rural settings. It, it it doesn't happen quickly enough, right across the board. Um, it's it's the education piece. It's also the the the, the rules and regulations to ensure that our licensing system is is fit for purpose, our NCT system is fit for purpose, the cars are are of a of a standard to ensure that you know the penalty point regime is enough of a deterrent that people are are aware of it. But critically importantly, that there is enforcement um, because. Anywhere where there has been success in driving down uh, uh, fatalities and collisions, it has been that suite of measures. There's a there's a plan in place by the Road Safety Authority, but there's that many plans, uh, Michael. Uh, um, it, it's only implementation that that matters, and we we are failing considerably, particularly in, in terms of recruitment into the Gardaí, recruitment into the, the 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 road traffic unit, and that needs to happen. It needs to to happen uh, as quickly as is possible to ensure that 
you know, that deterrent is there for people who are, for whatever reason, and, you know, there's a particular, and, and I, you know, I was a young man before, um, and, and I, I, you know, in, in my position as a TD for the area, as a male TD, to say to young drivers, um, you know, this life is, it's not a dress rehearsal, you know, this is, you get one shot at this, um, you know, when you're behind the, the, the wheel in a vehicle, it's not a toy. It's a you know it, it, they're mm. incredibly powerful, incredibly uh, dangerous, and there are risks associated with it. Um, you know, mm. uh, far better to, to to take your take your time um, and to exercise all caution because mm. you know there are, there are, there are others depending on, on on your actions. Okay, well we are going in the wrong direction, but it has to be said uh, that uh, that it follows uh, many years of a reduction in the number of uh, people who lost lives uh, on Irish roads and one of the reasons for that uh, is something that you mentioned there I suppose uh, the infrastructure uh, and indeed over the past two decades how cars have uh, improved and there are generally safer vehicles to be driving but when it comes to the infrastructure uh, that is costing us and continues to cost us. Tell us about uh, the €6 million that has gone to the operators of uh, the M3 motorway toll booth. Yeah this this is a um a feature of the the type of contract that was entered into, um, which essentially guaranteed the the builders of the the M3 uh, motorway an income. So if 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 the the traffic volume wasn't to the requisite uh, uh, capacity, um, that the taxpayer would pick up the difference. So over the the period of the last two years, uh, six million euro has been paid over the the course of the last uh, 12 years since the motorway, the M3, came into, came into being, um, over €18 million, Euros, uh, that's exclusive of VAS, has been paid to the operator. And I have to say, at a time of a, a cost-of-living crisis, at a time when last year uh, the, the M3 operator uh, uh, announced operating profits in excess of €11 million, Euros, that the, the taxpayer was picking up a tab and contributing um, six million euros over two years. It's it, it points towards the the the, the problem uh, and actually the, the you know the dreadful nature of the the, the gold plated contracts that were enter, entered into back in the early two thousands. And it was mm. Fianna Fáil led governments that that were very fond of these PPP contracts and and these, delivered the roads. Uh, you know that is the other side of it. But what's the solution to it now? Uh, because they are contracts, uh, and uh, I'm sure you would want the government to honour those contracts. Yeah, and, and I think, look, that, that, that's a difficulty. And, and we had the conversation, Michael, before the, the, the Christmas in relation to the to the toll increases and, and the impact that that's uh, and the prospect of, of um, them not going ahead and the fact that the, there are contracts in place and, and contracts are contracts. Um, I think one of the, the complicating factors in relation to, to this particular feature, and it's only in two places, in, in the M3 mm. um Jack Lynch Tunnel, isn't it? And, 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 the, and the Limerick Port Tunnel. And the Limerick Port Tunnel, it's actually far in excess of, of what we're paying in, 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 in need. Um, they're in the region of almost between 7 and 10 million euros a year. And luckily enough, when we get back to significant traffic volumes, um, there were years there in 2018, 2019, where we didn't, where the taxpayer didn't have to to make a contribution because the traffic volumes were were sufficient. But it raises the question in the time ahead, and many people have said to me before, 
you know, the reason why the, the Navan rail line isn't being built is because these gold-plated contracts were entered into on the M3 and the need uh, cars on the M3 to pay for the M3 so you won't have the, the Navan rail line delivered. And uh, I, 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 I'm committed to ensure that that isn't the case. Mm. Um, and I specifically asked the question and specifically got the, the answer that it wasn't the case. But you can see where there's a, where there's a, a policy conflict there, where the, the less cars that are driving on the M3, the greater the bill that the taxpayer is going to have to, to pick up. On this and your theory is that people will be taking the train instead of, of driving? Absolutely, and this contract mm. runs out until 2052. You know, mm. so 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 there there are it's it's something that that does have to be considered. I think you know we we do have to live with it uh, as it's part of a contract. But I think you know it's important that as we look at a whole change in terms of of transport policy, and we had the climate action plan before the Christmas, that we do review these contracts and make sure that they are. Um, we, we've done it on other, you know, we've done it on, on the M50, for example, in the past, and we ensure that they are are fit for purpose for a new uh, a mode of our new approach in terms of transport policy, where we're uh, encouraging people onto public and active transport. Um, at the same time, we can't be heaping uh, uh, extortionate uh, costs onto motorists who mm. are forced to use the motorways or onto the taxpayer for picking up the, the tab for, for dreadful contracts entered into by Fianna Fáil-led governments. Okay, and I can see from uh, the sheet that you sent to us uh, that that tab actually runs to €6,207,477 uh, to guarantee payments uh, to the operators of uh, the tool, that money paid over two years. That's the way it is and uh, no way out of that one, it, it would appear uh, in uh, uh, the immediate future at least. But we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport, Darren O'Rourke, who is a TD for Meath East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, an awful lot of people have uh, come to make Ireland uh, their home, moving here from Ukraine, fleeing war. Many of them are very talented professionals. But what about all of uh, these doctors, nurses, accountants, lawyers, engineers, or whatever their profession is, and what they're doing now. There is a, a barrier uh, because uh, in some circumstances their qualifications aren't recognised in this country and uh, indeed in other cases there are language barriers to them getting work in the professional field. This leaves a situation uh, where they might get work as a cleaner or a translator or work in a bar or something like that. Part 5 of the bill, Count Corla, deals with a separate issue which is requiring the government to introduce regulations to give effect to the qualifications of people who have fled Ukraine. There are very many people who have come to this country, who are very welcome to this country, who have qualifications, whether that be as lawyers or doctors or as accountants. Those people want to work here. But at present, there's great difficulty in terms of them getting the appropriate qualifications and recognitions to carry out their area of expertise. Under Section 13 of the bill, there'd be a requirement on government to review that issue and to put forward proposals as to how we could recognise the qualifications that those people have. Right, that's uh, Fianna Fáil's Jim O'Callaghan, who introduced proposed legislation uh, in the Dáil before Christmas, which 
could lead to some of those qualifications being recognised. Uh, although I'm not sure that it maps it out completely clearly. Let's uh, speak uh, to John Lannan, though, who's uh, the CEO of Duras, who works, which works with uh, people coming into this country, immigrants uh, from Ukraine and elsewhere. And a very good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, what do you make uh, of what Jim O'Callaghan is proposing? Good morning. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot in this Ukraine solidarity bill. The main part of it is, um, as you said, relating to the crime of aggression and putting that into Irish law. There's a part relating to sanctions that have been imposed by the European Union on individuals that are associated with the, the Putin regime. But the, the the part that you're referring to there on foreign qualifications would require the government to introduce regulations to give effect to the qualifications to people who have arrived here from U- Ukraine. Um, and I think this is um, quite, quite welcome. Um, as you've noted already, a lot of people are coming here with a lot of expertise, a, a lot of um, knowledge and experience that, that they can bring. There was a story in the Irish Times at the weekend of six doctors up in Donegal who hoped to work in Ireland once their medical registration is complete, but for now they have to work as, as cleaners or, or in a bar. And, and in Doris, we've met several doctors, we've met psychologists, we've met psychotherapists, lots of others who want to use their skills, they want to use their training, but they can't because their qualifications aren't recognised. Mm. I read that story in uh, the Irish Times and it, it really described what it, it is uh, said were the horrors of war in Bucha or Bucha uh, and how some of uh, these six doctors who are now in Bundoran uh, fled from uh, those bodies on the streets and uh, the terror of war to find some sanctuary in this country. Uh, it must be difficult for them to come though uh, not just uh, under the circumstance of seeking refuge and international protection like that, uh, but to a, a totally different life where their skills ha- have no value. And I, I think that was reflected in that piece to a large degree. Um, in, indeed. I mean, they, they are very skilled professionals. And one of the things that we have found over the years with people who came here seeking international protection from other countries is that over time they lose their skills and expertise it can become obsolete you know if you're working in a professional capacity you need to be keeping up to date with developments you need to be practicing you need to be engaged all the time um and and you know we we know recognize that it takes time and it takes resources to recognize the qualifications even simple things like the ukrainian driving license has required specific processing. It was good, at, or is good that they're accepted in Ireland now, and that does help people to, to get access to work. Um, English language proficiency, of course, is, is another area. It's often the first stumbling block. So we need to ensure that the education and training boards and others are resourced to provide classes. And, and not just a couple of hours a week, that isn't enough. What, what's needed is intensive courses to enable people um, to, to work here in Ireland in their professional capacity or in some other field. Yeah, because it's easier said than done in a lot of respects, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you don't want to compromise uh, the qualification, let's say, of doctors generally uh, if uh, the Ukrainian qualifications differ somehow and aren't up to the same standard. But apart from that, you have to have the language of the country to work in the country. Absolutely, yeah. And and there there is... Um, you know, without doubt, a lot of work that that needs to to be done in in this. I mean, in many ways, 
we've been able to react faster to the arrival of people from Ukraine than from other parts of the world. Um, it's, it is important to to say that while recognising Ukrainian qualifications is really important and it's welcome, um, measures like these shouldn't be limited to people from Ukraine. There are very many other people in direct provision with full or partial qualifications as engineers and doctors, radiographers, um, so on. Mm. They, they should also be recognised. So, so there is quite a bit of work to do here. It is complex. We've also got um, many people who have partial qualifications as well. So they, there needs to be pathways to the, for them to be able to complete their training or their education. There is a role for the professional bodies here. There's a role for the universities. There is, as I said, lots that that needs to be done. Indeed. Uh, And uh, we start this new year uh, with many of uh, the challenges that we had last year. Uh, I think there's been some improvement, though, has there, uh, in terms of accommodation uh, with uh, the latest appeal from government uh, being uh, heeded by uh, some 500 property owners, I think. Yeah, I mean, it is um, a welcome development that local authorities are now identifying, they're, they're checking and they're making available any vacant units that come to their attention. But there is still an over-reliance on the hospitality sector, on hotels. You know, we know that, you know, when it comes to next summer or the running to next summer, a lot of the um, hoteliers are going to want to bring them back into use in the, the tourism industry and that's perfectly understandable. So a lot more needs to be done in terms of providing longer term secure accommodation around the refurbishment of buildings, the rapid bills and, and all of that to ensure that the people who have had to escape from Ukraine, mm. who've been here in Ireland now in many cases for Ten, 10 months um, since, since the end of February or the start of March um, and who recognise that they are going to have to stay here for the foreseeable future. We need to um, ensure that they can integrate, that they can find a reasonable place to live, but that they can also enter employment, they can enter education, they can get on with their lives and, and, and ensure that their children can grow up safely here in Ireland. Mm, OK, well, I'm sure there's a, a lot of anxious people up in Dundalk uh, at the moment. Uh, around 50 Ukrainian refugees uh, were told before Christmas that they would have to leave the Crown Plaza Hotel there and move uh, to different accommodation in Kerry, in Galway and uh, in Limerick. Uh, and they were heartbroken uh, because uh, they had their rooms in the hotel decorated for Christmas. Uh, they were saying that their children were in schools. Um, they had jobs themselves and things like that and uh, couldn't understand how, how or why they had to re- relocate, let alone with uh, such uh, little notice. Now, a stay was put a- on that uh, and undoubtedly a decision will be made as to what's going to happen next uh, in the coming days. But it's situations like that that really need to be avoided, don't they? Uh, I mean, it seems so un- unfair, particularly on the children. And I, I read the other day that there's 13,000 pupils uh, enrolled uh, in schools uh, since uh, the Russian invasion on the 24th of February. Yeah, it's it's very um, unsettling and difficult for people when they're moved, particularly at very short notice. And we have to bear in mind that um, you know the people 
who have arrived from Ukraine have already been kind of um, displaced in violently in many cases. They've been traumatized by their experiences. They arrive in Ireland to find a little bit of security and sanctuary. Their children get into school. Things start to settle, settle a little bit. And then if they're uprooted from that, that can be re-traumatizing again. That can be extremely difficult. It can be unsettling for um for children and for for the entire family, um, we we've had many cases of people who were um, had found work or had got into education and were doing English classes and were suddenly uprooted and and moved. Um, and and we we do need to get better at ensuring the stability and the the well-being. This is another really critical area: is the 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 well-being and the welfare of people in the accommodation centres right across the country. There are over five hundred. Um, um, serviced accommodation centres for Ukrainians at the moment. We've got to ensure that there are adequate um, and appropriate standards across the board in all of those to ensure that people are safe and well. Mm, and it was a, a record number of people who sought asylum in this country last year. I think it's about 70,000 people who have come from Ukraine, uh, but uh, over 13,000, 13,319 people coming from other countries seeking refuge. In, indeed, and there is no doubt that this has put additional pressure on the Department of Children when it comes to finding accommodation. Um, and the white paper that was um, proposed and um, committed to by government to end direct provision has to a large extent gone by the wayside now, although we do hope that they move forward with building reception centres um, um, so, so that people can begin the journey towards sanctuary security and international protection here in Ireland. And again, just ensuring that they get what they need in terms of vulnerability assessments, addressing their medical needs, English classes, really important in order to be able to gain access to to, to employment. But um, yeah, the, the numbers have, have increased significantly. And as I said, that does place an additional challenge on the Department of Children when it comes to finding secure accommodation. Are there two categories of people seeking international protection, the Ukrainian refugees and everybody else? So we we have um, and have for, for um, several decades now have people coming here seeking international protection under what was initially the Refugee Act and is now the International Protection Act. We also have the people who are escaping from Ukraine who are provided with um, temporary protection, it's called here, under an EU mechanism. And it's really important to ensure that while we're, we're putting positive measures in place for the people who have arrived from Ukraine and are welcome and, and um, we, we hope that they, that they can integrate and get on with their lives here. But we need to do the same for international protection applicants, people who are fleeing from persecutions and wars in other parts of the world, whether it's in the Middle East or it's an African country or it's, it's some other part of the world, because they They've also been, you know, um, been, been traumatised, been violently displaced, had really long, difficult journeys to get to Ireland. And, and it's taking a long time to process their applications. This is having an impact on the well-being and the health of people living in direct prevention. It's causing stress, it's causing difficulties. And in many cases, because of the increase in numbers. We don't have adequately trained people in those mm. direct provision centres right now either. And as a result of that, there are um, 
you know, there, there are concerns over child safeguarding in many cases, over welfare, over well-being. And um, again, this is something that we hope the government will, will look to, to do in a better job on in 2023. Okay. Indeed, some of uh, the talents necessary may be available from uh, those who are seeking international protection. And uh, I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm John, uh, if I'm wrong, John, is uh, that uh, if uh, you... Uh, you're a doctor who's come here from Syria or uh, if you've come here from Ukraine uh, that uh, we should give people the opportunity to fulfil their potential and to look on it as an opportunity uh, and that there's a talent pool there that is possible to tap into. Absolutely. There there is a talent pool there and it's welcome that there are employers around the country that are starting to recognise this. It's good that some of the people who have arrived um, to seek asylum or international protection here can work, but we need to ensure that people can work from the beginning of their their time here after they've acclimatised, one could say, they've um, they've got to the the appropriate level of English and we've got to do more, as you say, to ensure that qualifications from anywhere in the world are are recognised. I mean, it's it's really soul-destroying for people who might have qualifications as a doctor, an engineer, a radiographer to sit in a state of what's effectively like forced idleness in, in direct provision while the country is screaming out for people with their talents and, and expertise. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for the moment, John, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. John Lannan is uh, the CEO with Duras. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Gardaí are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Fiona Kerr of Navangarda Station joins us for the report this week and thanks for doing that. We're going to begin in Navan and a report of a car that was broken into. Good morning, Michael, and Happy New Year to you and your listeners. And um, you. Thank you. Um, On Friday the 30th of December, at approximately 6.30am, an attempt was made to break into a parked car at Cush Glasson Walk in Johnstown and Navan. The Guardian Navan are now seeking the public's assistance, especially if any resident has maybe CCTV footage or any motorist in the area has dash cam footage. So appealing to listeners this morning, if they have any information, to please contact Navan Garda Station, or indeed if they prefer to also, they can call the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111. OK, two burglaries then in Laytown to report on. That's right. The uh, Laytown Gardaí are investigating two burglaries which occurred last Saturday, the 31st of December. The first burglary took place in the Churchview area of Ardcast, sometime between 4.30 and 7pm, and the second burglary occurred in the Fenner area of Ardcast between 6 and 7.30pm. So anyone who may have been in these areas between these times and noticed anything suspicious, maybe any persons or vehicles acting suspiciously, they're asked to contact um, either Leytown Garda Station or Ashburn Garda Station. All right, uh, we'll go to the M3. Uh, you're appealing for information about some dangerous driving. Well, in the early hours of the 1st of January, Garda received a number of calls from motorists reporting that a vehicle was travelling on the wrong side of the M3 motorway. And numerous guarded patrol vehicles were dispatched and the Dunshockland patrol car met the offending vehicle travelling in the overtaking lane towards them. But they managed to bring the offending vehicle to a safe stop and a male driver in his 30s was arrested at the scene and taken into custody. 
So the driver has since been charged with a number of road traffic offences and has appeared before Trim District Court. So the Gardaí did great work here, but we would also like to thank the members of the public who reported this. And like with this incident and so many others, the Gardaí rely on the help and the goodwill of the public to help them do their job and bring offenders to justice. Okay, very good. Uh, We're going to conclude with some advice uh, that you have uh, for listeners today about being web-wise. That's right. So this Christmas, so many children would have received a new piece of technology, be it a phone, a laptop or a tablet. And if you need help setting up the parental controls, check out the step-by-step guide on WebWise Ireland. And all of this information and lots more useful tips can be found on the Mies Garda Crime Prevention Facebook page. And just to add, a drone was found on the 26th of December and handed into Black Rock Garda Station. And if you think you could be the owner of this, to please contact dundalk.property at garda.ie. That's dundalk.property at garda.ie with further details. Okay, very good. Thank you indeed, uh, Garda Fiona Kerr of Navangarda Station, and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, let's uh, hear some of the comments uh, that have been coming to us, and thanks as always to everybody who has been in touch with us. John is in Navan. He says he travels regularly to Dublin for medical appointments. Recently, he says he had reason to travel to Limerick on the motorway, uh, and he's of the belief that if you're sticking to the speed limit then you're seen as being in the way by other motorists he he says for the most part he travels at the speed limit and says uh, that people fly past them at ridiculous speeds no one seems to obey the existing limits John says he he doesn't really see the point in changing them further Uh, on his numerous road trips over the last six months he's never once come across a guard at checkpoint or seen a speed camera van in action thank you indeed uh, John they are out there Uh, I would imagine you've been lucky or unlucky depending on how you view it if you haven't come across uh, one of the road checks uh, but they are out there as we know from the reports of those uh, who've been detected breaking some of the road traffic laws. Michael is in Bettystown. Thanks for your call, Michael. He says he wants to know if anything can be done about the large number of people who are popping on and off the footpaths on these electric scooters. Many of them are dressed head to toe in black and there's little or no lighting or high-vis markings on their scooters. They're a huge danger on the roads and a danger to motorists. Surely it should be made compulsory that they have to wear high-vis gear when operating their scooters. Thanks, Michael, uh, for that. Uh, It's certainly a a problem. At least some people would say it's certainly a problem and uh, there's a lot of people who are are very unhappy uh, about scooters. I'm sure a lot of people got them for Christmas as presents as well, uh, which uh, could lead to some interesting behaviour depending on the age of some of the people uh, who are going around on these. So there is legislation going through the Oireachtas very slowly. It doesn't look as though it's going to uh, do anything much different uh, for scooters that uh, travel at speeds of 25 kilometres an hour or less. Uh, another WhatsApp message from somebody who says, uh, good morning, Michael, myself and my family uh, have moved into Kells, into a council house, but we've had no heating uh, since it, it broke down. And uh, I've a lot of concern about children and grandchildren. We'll uh, put a call into the council on your behalf. Uh, maybe we'll give you a call and get more details uh, of that. And we can put a call into the council on your behalf and see if uh, anything can be done about that situation. Obviously, a very... 
unfortunate situation uh, at this time of the year. Margaret, thank you for your text to the programme. She says, I'm a car driver and I'm fed up uh, for being blamed for road deaths uh, and that uh, it's the drivers who are always blamed. Yes, some are at fault, but so are cyclists and pedestrians who are out at night dressed in black but no lights or high-vis jackets or armbands and they're very hard to see. Why aren't they prosecuted for being a danger on the roads? All road users, not just drivers, need to take responsibility for their safety and make sure that they can be seen. Thank you, Margaret. That's the final word for today. Thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.